So we are in part two of our series, What Happy Couples Know. Uh, when I was single, in my single days, uh, I got married in 2011 um, to my lovely wife. I saw her walking somewhere. Um, oh, so <laughs> I was just talking about you, sorry. Hi, <laughs> honey. Okay. She loves to be pointed out, trust me. Um, so um, when we got married, uh, years before that, I remember, for those of you that have been married for a long time, um, you might have trouble with this, but um, do you guys remember single life? Like, for those of you that have been married, some of you, it's like forever ago, single life. But um, do you guys remember single life? Do you remember, like, trying to, like, go on dates with people and, like, trying to get girls to, like, to, like, for the guys, trying to get girls' numbers. It, it wasn't very fun. I remember the first, when I, my first, like, heartbreak experience in single life, I had a girl that I liked on my hockey team. Um, I was not old enough to drive, um, but I still uh, kind of wanted to go on a date with her, so I was like, I'm gonna call her and see if we can go on a date, and maybe my mom will pick us up if we go on this date. Not a great start. So, I decided I'm gonna go, I'm gonna call her. And um, the problem is I didn't get her number, like someone gave me her number, terrible start, you should ask for the girl's number. So I called her, and I was so nervous, I wrote out what I was gonna say, I was so nervous about calling her. I had to call her house, four cell phones, and um, I called her, and um, she got on the phone, and I said, hey, um, your name, um, I, I'm just, I, I just wanna let you know that, um, that I've had a lot of fun with you in hockey, I think you're really fun, and, and I just gave this whole speech. And then uh, at the end of it, I said, so I just wanna know, would you maybe wanna go on a date with me? And here's what she said verbatim, I remember like it was yesterday, she said, Aw, that's so nice. No. <laughs> that was it. And I'm like, okay. So that was my first memory of single life. And here's one thing I realized when I was single. I was constantly looking for the person, the, the perfect person for me. And when you were single, you were doing that too, right? We're always constantly looking for that perfect person for us. That person that kind of fits what we want and the, the personality we like. And when I, I was constantly looking for the perfect person for me. I never dreamed about becoming the perfect person for somebody. I just always dreamed about finding the perfect person for me. And when I met Erica, she was the perfect person for me because she fit in my box of hopes, dreams, and desires. If you weren't here last week, I'm gonna give you a really quick review, but I highly recommend if you weren't here last week to go to impactchurchmp.com. You can find our YouTube page, find our podcast, you can find everything there where we kind of talked about all this tension. But we, what we said last week is all of us have a box of hopes and dreams and desires when it comes to our relationships. All of us have this box of hopes and desires when it comes to our relationships. It's full of a lot of things. Full of things like this, time management, how we're going to manage our time, how we're going to uh, do every other holiday, how we're going to do that. Um, the chores, you have hopes and desires when it comes to who's going to do the chores in your house when you get married and you get in a relationship. How are you going to spend the money? Are you going to have separate bank accounts? Same bank account. Uh, budget? What are you going to do? Uh, what are you going to live in? We all have, uh, we all have these hopes and desires when it comes to conflict resolution. How are we going to handle our conflict? When it comes to these kids, we all have those, right? Hopes and desires when it comes to our kids. All of us have this box that we said last week. The problem with having hopes and desires box, which there's nothing wrong with having one. In fact, all of us have one. All of us. This is a God-given thing. We all have these. It's all full, filled with good things. The problem is when we get um, married. We get into a relationship. We take this box of hopes and desires and we hand it off. Hand it off. When I got married to Erica, I brought a ring and I brought my box, my hopes and desires. And I think this is a great box. She's gonna love this box. The problem is when you hand this box off to somebody else, they don't receive it as hopes and dreams and desires. Instead, they receive it as expectations. Here's what I'm now expected to do. Here's my expectations. It's homework for them. It's a weight on their shoulders that they now have to fill because on my side, I see hopes and dreams and desires. Why wouldn't everybody want to do it this way? But on this side, on her side, on their side, all they see is expectations. And 
Expectations is a strong belief that something will happen or will be the case in the future. That someday we're going to get to this point, and I have this box and you have this box, and we're thinking someday they're going to get to this point where they're living out of this box. It creates expectations. And the big problem with expectations is that it creates a debt-debtor relationship. So we said last week that expectations creates a debt-debtor relationship. Now, I owe you and you owe me. That's what it becomes. You owe me, kids. You owe me to handle the conflict correctly. You owe me to stay within the budget. You owe me chores. You owe this to me, and I owe you. That's what expectations create, a debt-debtor relationship. It creates a debt-debtor relationship. And I was thinking of an example this week. when I, Before I got married, I was living with uh, three, three of my uh, close guy friends, and I was in charge of the rent, so they'd have to give me rent money. This is back before Venmo, so like, they had to like, go to the bank and get cash out and give it to me. And I remember this one roommate of mine that um, he always was late on giving me the rent. And one time he came up to me and said, hey, I'm really sorry, but um, I'm really late, money's been tight, is there any way I can give you a 300 bucks, whatever it was, um, is there any way I can give that to you in like next month? And I said, okay, that's fine, I'll wait, I, I can wait for that. So I waited, then uh, two weeks later, um, he went to take me out to lunch. And I said, okay, so we went out to lunch, and he bought my lunch. And he thought he was being really nice by buying my lunch. The problem was, I didn't think it was nice. In my head, I was thinking, don't buy me lunch. In fact, don't buy yourself lunch. Give me the money that you owe me. Because if somebody owes you money, they can't give you money, right? If somebody owes you money, they can't give you money. And the problem with, with having this box and when we give it to them, it becomes expectations. Now they owe this to you. So now you cannot recognize love and they cannot give you love because all you want to do is meet your expectations. That's what happens, you become a debt-debtor relationship. So how do we keep this from happening? Here's what we close with last week. Here's the closing question. The question we have to answer in order to keep this from happening is, what do they owe you? Come to the conclusion of what do they owe you? What does your partner, what does your spouse owe you? What do they owe you? And happy couples know the answer to this question. The answer is nothing. They don't owe you anything. Happy couples know that they owe each other everything and aren't owed anything in return. And that's what we left off last week. So this week, I wanna wrestle with a different question. We all have this box. I wanna wrestle with this question when it comes to relationships. What are great relationships built on? What are great relationships built on? What makes a great relationship? What is that foundation of a great relationship? What is it built on? When Erica and I got married, um, we did premarital counseling, in fact, Whenever um, I marry a couple, I always highly suggest that they do premarital counseling. And the one we did was something called Prepared and Rich. Um, and it, it was this big survey that we took. And when you take it, you kind of see what you're expecting from the marriage, and then you find out what they're expecting from the marriage, and then you compare them. And then you see what things you were expecting or weren't expecting, and some of that stuff. And when, when we did it, it kind of went over our roles. Because in every relationship, people just kind of fall into roles. It's natural. Um, and it went over the roles that I expected to have, I expected myself to have, and I expected her to have. And then it went over her roles, what she expected she was going to have, and what she expected I was going to have. Some of those roles matched, where I thought she was going to do something, and she agreed, she thought she was going to do it. And then other roles did not match. So right away, we were like, okay, this is going to be an issue. I'm glad we've heard this, I've heard about this now. But a lot of times we think, okay, that's what a great relationship is built on. It's like, we know our roles, and we stick to our roles, and we find them. That's not what a great relationship is built on. Great relationship is not built on a code of conduct. It's not built on just you having the correct conduct and, and then making everything fine. That's not what it's built on. A great relationship, when happy couples know what makes a great relationship, what it's built on is mutual submission. 
mutual submission. Great relationships are built on mutual submission. Mutual submission. And here's the thing. You cannot mutually submit until you answer the question, what do they owe you? Because if you feel like they owe you something, you can't submit to them. You have to come to the conclusion that they don't owe me anything. And once you come to that conclusion, then you can start to mutually submit. But I'm telling you, if you want a happy relationship, it's mutual submission. That's what it's built on. Here's what mutual submission is. It's putting each other first by going first in an effort to be last. Putting each other first by going first in an effort to be last. Where does this idea come from, mutual submission? Actually, this idea comes from some of the things that Paul wrote. It comes from uh, what Jesus preached. So we're, we're gonna be talking from Ephesians chapter five. So if your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians chapter five. We're gonna pick up there in a second. It'll also be on the screen. But before we get to Ephesians chapter five, I wanna talk about something that, and we talked about last week, and we talked a little bit about in our last series. But Jesus, when he was here and he was doing his ministry, right before uh, he was going across, he gave one last final commandment. One last final commandment. We talked about this last week, but it's so essential for us to understand this commandment if we're going to live this principle out. Here's what he said in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus says, from here on out, these are your marching orders. That you are to love everybody else the way that I love you. That's your marching orders. Everything you do from here on out, guys, love each other the way that I have loved you. And if you think about Jesus, he could have gone around the room and talked to all the people that were in that room at the Last Supper, and he could have explained to them how he showed love to them. I mean, Matthew was there. Matthew was a tax collector. If you don't know what a tax collector is, a tax collector was considered the very worst thing you could possibly be. In, in that culture, you did not want to be a tax collector. There were sinners, and there were tax collectors. Tax collectors were the worst. Their job was to go around and get the tax that you owe, and, but the, the thing is, they could charge anything they wanted over top of it. So let's say you owe a thousand bucks in taxes. The tax collector can come and say, hey, you owe two thousand bucks in taxes. And you know that that thousand bucks is going in their pocket. There's nothing you can do about it. If you don't pay it, they're going to arrest you. That's what they did. No one liked tax collectors. The only people tax collectors hung out with were other tax collectors. That's it. Jesus could have said to Matthew, hey, Matthew, remember when you were a tax collector and nobody liked you and I gave you a job and I, I gave you a purpose and I showed you love when no one else would? Yeah, I remember. Well, I want you to love everybody that way, just like I loved you. Could have gone to Peter, who did not want Matthew in the club. Say, hey, Peter, remember when you didn't want Matthew to hang out with us because he was a tax collector and you judged him? He's like, yeah, I remember. Yeah. And, but I still forgave you and loved you. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I want you to love everybody that way. That's how I want you to love them. You could have gone to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, when he heard about Jesus, his friend Philip said, hey, you need to meet this Jesus Nazareth guy. And Nathaniel's response was, Nazareth? What good could come from Nazareth? As in, there's nothing that can... If, if this guy's from Nazareth, I don't want anything to do with him because there's nothing. He stereotyped a whole group of people. Jesus could have said, hey, remember when you like this, my whole town? Remember that, Daniel? Yeah. I forgave you and still loved you, right? Yeah. Well, that's how I want you to do. I want you to love everybody that way. And then this commandment of love others the way that I loved you becomes crystal clear right after this dinner. So after this dinner, he gets arrested. He gets put to death, and he's on a cross, and he dies for everyone. And these disciples that just heard that commandment now see Jesus on a cross, dying for them. How are we supposed to love everybody? Jesus says, love them like I love them. Love you. And how did I love you? I gave my life for you. That's what you're supposed to do. Love one another as I have loved you. This is now our lens. If you're here and you would say you're a follower of Jesus, everything we do should be through this lens. This is everything. 
Everything you read, everything you act, every way you act is through the lens of love others the way Christ loved us. Everything after this in the Gospels, we see it in this lens. When you read the Old Testament, you're not sure why certain things are a certain way. Read it through the lens of what Jesus commanded. As you live life, do it through the lens of love one another. And then this guy Saul comes into the picture. And Saul, um, he hated Christians. And his job was to get rid of this movement called the way. That was his job. He wanted to get rid of it, and that was the follower of Jesus. That was their, their name, the way. So his job was to go and murder anyone that preached the message of the Gospels. He said, no, you're, I'm gonna, you're, you're done. And he was good at it. He was successful. And he was making a lot of money. He was doing great. And then, all of a sudden, something changed. He's walking down the road to Damascus, and he meets the risen Savior. He meets Jesus. And something happens, and he switches, and he becomes, goes from Saul to Paul. He goes from someone that persecuted Christians to being the biggest church planner the history of, of our world has ever seen. And he goes, and he goes to all these different nations and preaches and goes to the Gentiles, the people that didn't know Jesus, not the non-Jewish people, and he preached the message of Jesus. To me, Paul is one of the clearest examples of why I believe what I believe. Because if Saul stayed the course of murdering Christians, he would have been successful. He would have been fine. But then, at some point he changes, and he goes to start telling everybody about Jesus, the people that he was just trying to get rid of, and he eventually goes to jail for it many times. He has terrible things happen, and then he dies for it. Why was he willing to change? Because when you meet someone that died and he came back to life, you're going to change too. And that's what happened. Saul eventually becomes Paul. And then Paul, through the lens of this command, writes a, a lot of different things. And, and what we're going to talk about today in Ephesians chapter 5 is a great, um, great thing for us as, as people that are in relationships to look at. And, and he does it through the lens of what Jesus commanded us. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 22. He's writing to the church in Ephesus here to other Christians. And here's what he says in verse 22. Ready? Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. I wanted it to be a little tense for a second. Because we all read that verse and none of us like that verse, right? We're like, wives, submit yourself. What are you talking about? In fact, um, if you're here or if you're watching on YouTube or listening to the podcast, you might hear this go, this is why I don't believe any of this stuff. I'm not going to follow this because why submit yourself to your husband? What are you talking about? Now, if, if that's you, I'm really glad you're here because I'm going to clear a lot of things up with this verse. Um, but here's a couple things you need to know about this verse. First off, when, when Paul is saying this, we have to understand the culture and the context he's saying it in. He's saying it to um, a, a culture in the first century where women were not treated well. It was all about men. So when he says this verse, no one disagreed. Everyone was like, yeah, we know. Okay, next. Yeah, you know, even the women were like, yeah, I know, we need to submit, we need to do that. In fact, um, back then there was something called potria potestas, which meant that men had legal jurisdiction over children and women. So, if a woman did not submit to her husband, then she could be put to jail, in jail, she could be put to death, she could be gotten rid of, because she was owned by her husband back then. So, when he says this, everyone's like, yeah, I get it. But, if you look at the original Greek, which is the earliest manuscript of this verse that we have, it actually says something a little different. Here's what the original Greek said. It says this, Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. <laughs> Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's no verb in there. That word submit's not in it. So you'd say, okay, where does the verb come from? Where does that word submit? Back in Greek culture, when they would do uh, different writings, they would always use a verb and then keep referring to that verb over and over. So in the, they didn't put the word there because it was referred in the first verse. So... First part of this, we've got to look at what that says. Where this word submit actually came from. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. That you are to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. In light of what God has done for you, we are to love people. So you are wise to place your husband's hopes and dreams and desires in front of yours as you submit. And husbands, you are to place your wife's hopes and dreams and desires in front of yours as you submit. Submit to one another out of reference to Christ. We call this mutual submission. This is the key to a happy relationship. I'm here for you, and you're here for me. But I'm not here for you because you're here for me. I'm here for you because God was here for me. That's what mutual submission is. I'm going to use everything that I am and everything that I have for what benefits you the most. It doesn't mean that you have the same roles in your relationship. It doesn't mean you have the same gifts and talents. But what it means is that you have the same exact value in your relationships. So Paul starts with the wives and wives submit to your husbands, which for, for I've taken a lot of different communication classes. I've taken speech. I've done different pastor classes when it comes to preaching. And one thing they always say is to start from the common ground. Do something that everyone's in agreement with. So if you notice when I preach, I almost always start with a story because that's common ground. We can all kind of laugh at me in that story most of the time. So Paul is a great a great speaker. He starts with common ground, flies with your husband. They all go, yeah, we know that. Tell us something you don't know. And then what he says next in this culture is so radical and so life-changing that I'm, I'm surprised you can get kicked out of the church for it. Here's what he said. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives. Or back then in the first century, they'd say, I don't have to do that. She's my property. I don't have to love her. No, I don't have to do that. That's not what I have to do. No, she's not have to love her. Or Paul says, no, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. It says, guys, you are to love your wife as if she is you. That's how you are to love her. In fact, what, what scripture says is that uh, when two become one, we become one flesh. So you're to love your wife as she's you because you are one. Because she is you. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, I cannot correctly articulate how radical this is, but this changed everything. This was said in a time and a culture where, I, like I said, women were, were second-class citizens. And the reason why when, I, when we put that verse up, wives submit to your husbands, the reason why we all got uncomfortable, we all saw the verse said, I don't like that verse. The reason why is because we embrace a worldview that men and women are equal. Let me ask you a question. Where does that worldview come from? The answer is Jesus. Jesus historically was the first person with any authority to look at a woman and say, you have equal value to a man. Historically, no one else did it before he did. He was the first one with any authority to push this message. Jesus unveiled this concept at a time where it was a ridiculous notion where he would be laughed at for saying this. Women aren't the same as men. He revealed this, this notion at that time. Jesus argued for women's dignity before anyone else argued for it. In fact, uh, we, we're a nation that's built on, on Christian foundation and on Christian values. Um, if you look at any other nations that aren't built on Christian uh, values that don't have the remnants of Jesus' teaching in it, look how women are treated in them. Women are treated as equal value, and there's a worldview of that here because of Jesus. Go to another nation they don't have a Christian value, look how women are treated there. They're not treated the same way. Because Jesus was the first one with any authority to do that. And I can give you example after example after example of Jesus bringing women up 
to the equal value. Um, at one point, these religious leaders come to come up to Jesus and say, "Hey, Jesus, what can I divorce my wife for? Is it like literally any reason, or is it just like these list of reasons I can divorce my wife? Because back then, you could divorce your wife for anything. If if, if whatever she did, if she didn't make the dinner the way you wanted, you could divorce her. If you just got tired of her, you could divorce her. It didn't matter. And 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 women didn't have any recourse for it." And Jesus says to them, no, there's no reason you can divorce your wife. Now go home and love your wife. Why? Because he gave them equal value. Um, the thing we don't talk about in church a lot, um, Jesus, when, when he was in his ministry, things cost money. Just like now, things still cost money. Do you, do you know who paid for the mission of Jesus? you know who paid for it? All scholars say that women paid for it. Women funded the mission. Mary Magdalene and other women funded the mission of Jesus. And then... The first people that see Jesus after the, re after the resurrection are women. Think about that. In a culture where their word meant nothing in court, all the Gospels say the first people, the first people that saw Jesus after he was resurrected was women. Now let me think about, let's think about this for a second. Let's say these disciples decide to make up a religion. They decide to make up this movement that we all are sucking into and we're here talking about. They decided to make this up. They go, okay, we got to make this religion up. This Jesus guy, he died. Uh, what are we going to do? No, let's just, let's just start this religion where we put ourselves down. We don't get any value out of it. We always put other people up in front of us. Let's do that. And then, um, man, I really wish Jesus didn't say he was going to physically die because it's really hard to, to prove that he came back to life. Um, I wish he said he was going to come back to life spiritually because that, that could be anything. But he says he's going to come back to life physically. Okay. Um, let's say some women found him. You wouldn't do that. If you're making this up, you would say men found him because women's words didn't mean anything back then. You know why women found him? Why did the gospel say that? Because that's what happened. Women found him. Jesus over and over and over brought women's value up. So what Paul is telling us, men and women, submit to one another. Submit to each other. So what does this look like for us? How do we apply it when it comes to our boxes? How do we do that? Paul is saying this, men, what is life to you? What is life to you? Whatever life is for you, put her in front of that. Have whatever value you give your own life, just put her a notch above that. That's what you want to do. And here's the deal. You cannot put her value over your box if your box is in the way. You can't say, here's my life, I'm going to put her in front of it. If this box is in the middle, you can't do it. It says, women, wives, put him over you. You can't do it if you have your box in the way. It's not possible. Happy couples get rid of their box and they mutually submit to each other's hopes and dreams and desires. The question is, how do you change this from expectations back to just your hopes and dreams and desires without putting a weight on them? The first question, like we said last week, is you have to ask, what do they owe you? The answer is nothing. They don't owe you anything. Happy couples know they owe each other everything but aren't owed anything in return. You have to start with that, number one. You have to start with that. Then, next thing you have to do is mutually submit. Say, so you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything for you, and you can do everything for me. It's mutual. Because remember, as, when you guys are married, you are one. That's what Scripture says. You are one. Mutually submit. Say his best over yours. Her best over yours. So last week, what I did, I, I gave you guys um, some questions to talk about, some, some review questions. And if you guys weren't here, uh, here are the questions I asked you guys to talk about. Um, what's in your box? I asked you guys to figure out what is in your box. Number one. And number two, uh, I asked you to figure out, have you handed it off to somebody else? This is crucial. You have to understand what is in your box and if you hand it off to somebody else. 
Here's your homework assignment this week. You guys ready? Now that you already know what's in your box, I want you to ask your partner, what's in your box? Valentine's Day is this week, right? When you guys are on Valentine's Day, I want you to say, hey, I want to know what's in your box. What's in your box of hopes and dreams and desires? And then, here's what you do, and some of you, it's going to be really hard. You ready? First, ask what's in your box, and then I want you to stop talking. It's going to be hard for some of you, I know. I want you just to stop talking and let them say what's in their box, okay? Let them talk about what is in their box. Now, I don't want you guys to get mad at each other. Some of you guys have been married for a long time. I want you to be like, you don't know what's in my box? We've only been married for 20 years. How do you not know what's in my box? Don't get mad at each other, okay? We're being honest and we're being vulnerable here. What's in your box? Don't get mad at each other. And, and ladies, I, I do want to say this. I know this is stereotyping, but ladies, I want to say this. When you ask your, your, your guy uh, what's in their box, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, nothing. Nothing. Nothing's in there. Like, and, and the thing is, he, he's not lying. He doesn't know what's in his box, okay? He's not, he's not lying about it. But... Deep down, that's why I give you guys a week to think about it. Deep down, if you really think about it, guys, you know what's in here. The problem is, we a lot of times say we don't know what's in the box, but we expect you to fulfill it. We just don't know what's in it, but we want you to take care of it. See, we need to understand what's in our box. I want you to ask your partner, what is in your box? And then listen. Here's why this question is so important. This question is an all-in question. It's saying, listen, I'm committed to this. I want to know what's in your box. And you cannot submit to your spouse or to your boyfriend or girlfriend or to your fiance. You cannot submit if you don't know what's in their box. So I want you to ask them what is in your box. When you ask that question and understand it, see what their hopes and dreams and desires are, then you can begin to mutually submit. Now I know that um, some of you may have an objection with this. And some of your objection is, is something like this. Like, okay, here, here's the thing, Eric. If I start submitting to my spouse, then we're going to live out of their box forever. Like, I'm never going to have a box again. Like, we'll always be in their box. Because if I submit, they're not going to submit. And now, all of a sudden, the rest of our life, we have to worry about their box. I get that objection. You start to say, if, if I don't give them expectations, you don't know what they're going to do. If I don't give expectations with, with the budget, they're going to overspend. If I don't give expectations with the chores, nothing's ever going to be done. I have to do everything. I get that objection. Some of you are feeling that objection. Here's what that objection really means. What you're really saying is, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that she won't. I'm afraid that he will. I'm afraid that she'll start. I'm afraid that he's going to stop. And when we start to have those objections and we aren't willing to mutually submit, here's what we do. We take this box and we make it a tug of war. So I can find the other end of this. Make it a tug of war. And we're holding our end, and your partner's holding their end, and you're sitting there going, okay, we're gonna, we gotta mutually submit, right? That's what he said. So on the count of three, we're both gonna drop our rope, okay? One, two, two and a half. Come on, you're gonna drop it, right? And you're afraid if you drop this rope, they're not gonna drop theirs, they're gonna pull it over, and then for the rest of your life, you're living out of their box. I get that. I get that. I understand that. But in order to mutually submit, we have to drop the rope. And if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus dropped the rope for you. Jesus came and died on the cross for you, for everyone, for the chance that you'll come back. He died on the cross for people that will never turn to him. He dropped the rope first. So as a follower of Jesus, you got to go first. You have to go first. If you don't drop your rope, you're going to be doing a tug of war for the rest of your marriage, the rest of your relationship. You have to drop the rope. Because happy couples put each other first 
by going first in an effort to be last. That's what happy couples do. We want to mutually submit, we have to put each other first by going first in an effort to be last. Some of you, you have to drop the rope first. You have to drop it. Happy couples know that. Paul tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Whatever that looks like in your relationship, whatever that looks like in your, in your marriage, in your engagement, whatever that looks like, you need to go first. You need to go first. Jesus went first for you. We need to go first. Happy couples put each other first by going first in an effort to be last. Now, I know the problem is this leaves us with our box because we might put the rope down, but we still have our box. So you might say, well, what do I do with my box? Next week, we're going to talk about what we do with your box and what we do with that because, again, this is a God-given thing. But if we want to have happy relationships, a relationship that is fruitful, a relationship that lasts the, the long term, we need to put each other first by going first in an effort to be last. Can we pray? Dear God, I thank you for being the God that went first, that came and saved us and died for us, that put your end of the rope down for us. We didn't deserve it. I mean, you're the God of the universe, and you came for us. And the chance that we'll turn back to you. Dear God, I just thank you for being the first one to do that. I pray for the relationships that are in this room. The relationships that, that are going well, they're trying to find a way to make things better. And for the relationships that aren't going well, I pray that you speak into those relationships. Help them to realize that they have a box. And that the only way to have a fruitful relationship is by mutually submitting, by submitting to one another. And help us to find a way to put our needs aside for the betterment of the person we're with. Help us to go first in an effort to be last. God, during this Valentine's Day uh, week, I just pray that you help these couples in the room to start to ask those questions. What's in your box? Start to understand each other more. Help them, help them be self-aware of, of the things they've been carrying around, the things that they've been putting on their spouse. People in the room that are single, I pray that you just help them with the knowledge of what we need to do in order to be ready for that person you're eventually going to meet. And thank you to the God that demonstrated love for us. That is love. During the season that we celebrate love, I pray that you help us to put our needs aside for the betterment of the one we're with. Thank you for putting your end of the rope down first. Help us to put ours down. We love you and we pray to you. In your son's name, amen. Okay, guys, we're going to close with a, with a closing song. I want to encourage you guys to stand up and we sing this last.